Well, this past week, my wife and I, I don't know what day it was, Tuesday or Wednesday, uh, we had some downtime, so we're flipping through our TV, and we came upon a movie that was playing called Dante's Peak. I don't know if you guys seen that movie, Dante's Peak. And we're watching this, and it's like a horrible movie. It is like, it's like, it's like somebody made it in their backyard. Like some college students made it. And uh, I mean, the dialogue, the special effects, the acting, it was just horrendous. And what was crazy was, I saw that movie twice in the theaters. I saw it, and I liked it so much, I took some church people with me to see it again. And uh, I saw it, I paid good money to see it twice. And I, what was I thinking? How could I have liked this uh, cheesy movie? And I, I realized it's because I like disaster flicks. I like things when, like, you know, things got, get destroyed, whether a small town or the whole world. So whether it's through a, a natural disaster like Day After Tomorrow or, like, Aliens by Independence Day or, like, some Mayan prophecy. I haven't seen it, but I, I, I hope to see 2012 maybe in a few days, weeks, or months to come, or when it comes on TV for free in like five years, you know, want to see that. Because there's somewhat of an appeal to disaster flicks, right? When the whole world burns up, you're watching it on TV or, or a movie theater, you know, at least my, thinking, my thought process is, man, if that were to happen, man, I don't have to take out the trash anymore. <laughs> well, I don't have to do any more dishes. I don't have, no more meetings. Wow, if that were to happen... I'd have to sit in another meeting for the rest of my life. Well, that wouldn't be, be so bad, right? It's that escapism via Hollywood as an appeal, at least to me. Um, but in reality, it's not appealing. In reality, it's a very disturbing and disheartening uh, uh, you know, prospect of what will happen. And so it's with that heart we study 2 Timothy 3 this morning. Um, if it was up to me, I would skip 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 9. Um, I don't know about you, but it's not an encouraging passage. Nothing really inspiring here. Um, really a disheartening uh, uh, reality of what, what has and will continue to happen of false Christians and false teachers infiltrating the church and devastating it just by their lives, by their deeds, and by their speech, uh, just opposing the work of gospel ministers and undoing um, a lot of, lot of things that Christians are endeavoring to do. Um, the reason we are studying it is because of our commitment to the Word of God, our commitment to the expositional study of the Scriptures. We believe that God has given us the whole counsel of God's Word, and it is not up to us to determine what is important and what is less important. It is not up to us to have a buffet mentality of, toward the Word of God and say, you know what, I, w- I want these encouraging portions of Scripture to be taught. And these portions of Scripture where it's kind of difficult, kind of discouraging, disturbing, we should skip over. Uh, then what happens is the pastor or the congregation becomes the arbiter or the judge of truth, uh, uh, a judge of what is important and unimportant, rather than Christ rather than Christ through his holy scriptures. So we have committed ourselves to study the whole counsel of God's word, and that means that there are Sundays where we study passages that are so sweet to the soul, uplifting, encouraging. You want to stand up and shout a, shout a song of praise. And then there are some days like today where we study, and you're brought low and saddened and distraught, 
and you're at the brink of despair, but hopefully at the end we won't make a leap into despair. Uh, Christ will remind us of his sovereignty and lift us up again. So that is our study for this morning. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, two basic commands uh, are given here by the Apostle Paul to uh, Timothy and, and thereby to all Christian leaders and to every Christian. Two commands, two imperatives, two imperative verbs are understand and avoid. The first command is found in verse 1, understand this. Second command is found in um, uh, verse 5, avoid such people. Um, the first command is understand, literally know this or keep this in your mind. New American Standard Version is uh, realize this. I like NIV here, you know, mark this. Mark this in your mind, Timothy, that there will be uh, terrible days in the last days. Right? Uh, terrible days. Uh, ESV, there will come times of difficulty in the last days. Now, the last days is a technical term in the New Testament. It is not talking about the few days or few years preceding the rapture of Christ. The last days, in light of Acts 2 and Hebrews uh, 12, is talking about that epoch in the Greek, the season between Christ's ascension and Christ's return. That that season, that time, that era is technically called the last days. So we are living in the last days. You might think, what, last days? That's a long time. That's 2,000 years. Well, it's because it's from our frame of reference. It seems long. But from God's perspective, it's just a few days. So we are currently living in the last days. When Paul penned this letter, he was talking, this is happening now. Because we're living in the last days. And it will continue until Christ's return. And he says these, this season will be a perilous season. Uh, kalipas, hard times, terrible times, grievous times, difficult times. Now, why will it be so difficult? Why will it be such grievous, terrible, perilous times? Is it because of uh, the Mayan prophecy or is it because of Christians will be persecuted or is it because... Uh, non-Christians are going to become more and more ungodly. No, that's not, no. People have been, always been ungodly from Genesis 3 till now. The world is not getting worse. It's always been this way. You know, non-Christians, unbelievers have always uh, committed sin and reveled in sin. Uh, and Christians are always being persecuted. And the Mayan prophecy is not real. It's not true. What makes it so perilous? Um, it is because of, uh, in, in light of, even though Timothy immersed himself to recover uh, the lost, even though he gives himself completely to be a holy vessel, to be kind to everyone, to be an approved workman who cuts straight the word of God, even though Timothy endeavors to be able to teach and endure evil patiently, and even though he strives to correct with gentleness, and even though all pastors and all Christians, we strive to do this, doesn't matter. Uh, it would be perilous times because false Christians and false teachers will infiltrate the church, and they'll be among the church, among the visible church, and wreak havoc among the body of believers. 
among Christians. Um, Christ gave this parable in Matthew 13, 24 through 30, where this man uh, went to his field, and he sold good seed in, in his field. But next morning he woke up, it's a parable, it's an illustration, and there was all these weeds in his field. He said, what happened? I cultivated this field, I took care of it. I was uh, careful to sow only good seed. Where did all these weeds come from? And Jesus said, uh, an enemy has done this. While we're sleeping, came and sowed weed uh, in our field. And, and the man said, well, what shall we do? Should we uproot the weeds now? And the master of the vineyard field said, no, if we do, we might tear out one of the good, uh, good seeds as well. We'll let it uh, grow, and the, and the harvest day, we'll gather it together, and we'll separate the good from the bad, and we'll burn up the weeds at that time. Well, that's an illustration uh, pointing to the reality of the Christian church today. Uh, and until Christ return, uh, that there will be in the Christian church those who profess to be Christians, and their outward Christianity is so excellent that they'll be given positions of leadership, and from a position of spiritual authority, they will harm the church, and they'll strive, they'll try to destroy the church. Christ um, warned us from his very first sermon in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7.15, Christ said, Beware of false prophets. They will come to you in sheep's clothing. They'll come... In camouflage, they'll come disguised. Uh, you know, even Paul said in Second Corinthians that Satan will come in a an, as an angel of light to deceive Christians, and this is what makes it particularly perilous, um, particularly grievous. Um, you know, we we lose soldiers in our in our in the battlefront in Iraq and uh, Afghanistan every week, if not every few days. Uh, and definitely when we lose soldiers in war, it, it grieves us, it saddens us. But what happened a few weeks ago in Fort Hood, when Major Hassan, one of the military leaders of our, of our country, he killed 13 uh, soldiers, 12 soldiers and one civilian, that was particularly grievous because he was one of us. He was trained by U.S. military. He was a major and we, a man of respect and trust, and yet he caused the death uh, of people, of, of our own soldiers. That's particularly more, uh, more hurtful, more painful. Likewise, uh, in the church today, uh, persecution from the world uh, is one thing, but when there is persecution and, and undermining of the gospel and uh, continuation of sin, promotion of sin within the ranks, that is what makes this uh, particularly grievous. Um, This was uh, foretold by Christ and by the apostles. Um, In Acts 20, 29 through 33, remember Apostle Paul, he knew that his uh, end was near. He called the elders of Ephesus, and he had a private meeting with them, and there was a lot of tears 
shared at that last meeting. And one of the things he shared with them was this. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you. From among the church, within the church, fierce wolves will arise and they will not spare the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things, perverted things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore be alert, he said, remembering that for three years I did not cease night and day to admonish everyone with tears. So Paul, morning and night, with tears in his eyes, spoke to the elders about guarding the church from people within the church, not outside the church. Guard the people from those who profess to be Christians and excel in outward Christianity uh, to, to guard the flock. And 1 Timothy 4 talks about this. Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith uh, by devoting themselves by, to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. Second uh, Peter 2, 1 and 3, false prophets arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. So there has always been false prophets, and we're not immune to that. We're not spared from that. There will be false teachers in our midst too. So these people will cause... Uh, immeasurable threat to the spiritual health, safety, and power of the body of Christ. So Paul says, Timothy, understand this. Take note of this. Mark this. There will be men in the church who, verse 8, who are opposed to the truth. No matter what they say, they are against truth. They are corrupted in mind. They're of, NIV says, depraved mind. There's no reasoning with these men. Right? There is no appealing to their consciences. They, they have seared their conscience. They have, it's callous, it's hardened. And they are disqualified, hadakimas. They're not Christians. They're disqualified regarding the faith. And so, in verses 2 through 5, Paul gives a list of, of, of characteristics of these false Christians, false leaders. 19 traits. Right? I mean, Paul just... I don't know if he's thinking about certain people in the church. He just goes off 19 marks of false teachers and false Christians. And it's a surprising list. For many years, because of what is contained here, I thought, and many many thought and think this, that Paul is talking about non-Christians because of the kinds of things pointed out here. But if this list is talking about people in the church, professing Christians, and even those who are perceived to be leaders in the capital C church, Christian church, then this is a surprising list. As we take a step back and look at the big picture of this list, uh, it tells us something very important, that when we are trying to discern false Christians from true Christians, false teachers and from from true teachers, this list tells us what not to look at, things not to consider, right? things that we're not to really uh, put a premium on, 
we're not to consider whether people make professions of faith. Right? Because all these people profess to be Christians. Right? That's not... So that's why, like, young Christians, it's such a hazardous place to be a young believer today. Because they look at the wrong things. Right? They look at, does that person profess to be a Christian? Or they look at a church's doctrinal statement. And they go to a Christian bookstore, and they think, oh, it's a Christian bookstore, so everything in here must be for Christians, written by Christians, for Christians. It is safe for me to read anything in this bookstore. And our hearts drop. And we want to uh, tell them in a humble, gentle, kind way that because of this list, profession of faith, the label that they put themselves are, are, are not to be considered. Um, their profession of doctrinal fidelity is, is secondary, whether for a Christian or for a church, looking at their website and seeing what their doctrinal statement says. Um, even their sacrificial lifestyle is secondary. You look at their lives and you look at how humbly they live, sacrificial, almost uh, aesthetic lifestyle. You know, they're fasting. You know, looking at their spiritual disciplines, it's not mentioned here. It's, it's secondary. How much they know the Bible, how much they pray, how devoted they are to scripture memory or fasting. Right? Uh, these are, are important because false Christians excel in these areas. Right? The religious people who have a form, a morphe of godliness. So they're experts, like Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup. So they're devoted to making sure that they have the Christian lingo down, their doctrinal statement is grammatically correct and consistent with other creeds. They're meticulous about their scripture memory and what, like they don't watch Dante's Peak, you know. <laughs> you know, they're meticulous about what they watch or don't watch, what they eat and don't eat, what they drink and don't drink, and how much they pray, and to make sure people know how much they pray. And they're fasting, and they, they're, they're keen on making sure people know how much they give, because they're, they excel, their focus is, 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 is external. So this list tells us what we are not to consider when we are considering a person to be a true or false teacher of the Word of God. Uh, also, we're not to look at their intentions. Um, you know, he seems like he has a good intention or a good heart. Like Sincerity is not an issue. You know, All the false teachers, they're very sincere. Reverend Moon is very sincere in what he does. I mean, Charles Taze Russell and, Russell and Joseph Smith are sincere men, right? Uh, sincere men. Uh, these aren't things to consider. Um, so uh, this is a surprising list. And it's also surprising because it helps us to uh, guide our thoughts and where to look, what to look for and where to look in, in trying to discern false Christians and false teachers. We're not to look at their external obedience or like their external religious works, tells us to look at the gaps in the Christian life. We're we're to look at their fruit. We are to look at their attitudes. 
we are to look at their relationships. So when we uh, listen to a false teacher, we are to see the fruit of their lives and fruit of their people that follow them. We are to look at their attitudes. Are they arrogant, boastful? Are they self-promoting? Are they sensual? We are to consider um, their relationships. There's a lot of slandering going on, gossiping. We are to look at their family relationship. Talks about that here. Uh, that's why the church is so, it's, it's a, a safe place in the church. Uh, through the internet, through the radio, through books, you can't see a person's relationships and see um, the fruit of their lives. But in the church, it is exposed. It is clearly seen. You can hide it for a year or two, maybe three, but over time, it comes out. And in the church, you can see the the true person uh, behind the curtain, what they're like through his relationship with his wife and also uh, uh, his children. And Eleanor's not helping me today, but uh, overlook her, you know, not being obedient. Apart from that, you can clearly see um, what the family is like. So uh, interesting, right? What Paul is pointing out here, right? He's saying, don't be um, deceived by their outward religiosity, their outward um, performance or, or works, religious works. And instead, look at the gaps of that person, the person's attitudes, the person's relationships, what person, what the person worships and loves. So he goes and he lists out 17 marks of false teachers. And, and uh, you know, I, I have studied all nine, uh, 19. I studied all 19 of these traits. And you know, that's not pretty clear what, what Paul is saying here. We'll go through them briefly spend more time on some and far less time on others. The first one, the chief one, is uh, lover, lovers of self. Right? This is the key one. This is the first characteristic. This is the primary one. This is the most important one because by this, he breaks the most important command, breaks the first commandment. The most important commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. This false Christian, this false teacher, it's not he breaks the 10th command or the 800th command he broke, and so he disqualifies himself. No, he, he, he breaks the f- most important commandment. He loves himself rather than God. The pride of self-love is the first and pervasive deadly sin that grips the human soul. And this is the foundational sin of all the others. It might be called the sewer out of which the rest of these ugly sins are discharged. This is the root sin. The word here is philautos. Uh, it's a compound word, phileo altos. Love's self. He's marked by adoring himself, worshiping himself. He is at the core selfish. It is the first idol and it's the deepest idol. And you know, Calvin said that our hearts are idol-making machines. And maybe that's a misunderstanding. I hear people talking about it. And our hearts, 
we do not create idols. We don't make idols. We make idols of things that God has given to us by grace as gifts. We make them idols. So God gives us friends. We make them. We place them above God. That's what our hearts do. God gives us money and we love it more than God. We make it an idol. Well, the first thing God has given us is ourselves. He created us. And our hearts are so twisted that we idolize self above the Creator. We idolize and worship and love the creature rather than God who created us. That's the first and foremost sin. And um, false Christians can uh, do a lot of things. They can memorize the whole of Scripture. They can commit themselves to live monastic lives and live very, very frugally, just eating you know, bread and drinking water for years. They can give themselves to be even martyred or sacrificial life devoted to serving the poor, or serving children throughout here and throughout the world. But false religion has no power to eradicate the self-love. False religion has no power, transformative power, to replace self from the heart, throne of the heart. Only gospel has that power. So when a person is not trusting in the gospel, his heart rages with love for self. And so it produces uh, 17 others. And the 19 is the other, other bookend, ultimate one. But the next 17, lovers of money. Right? The Greek word is covetous. It's because the Greek word is phil argos, phileo argus, uh, lover of silver. Right? So they use ministry. They're devoted to Christianity. They're devoted to church. Why? Because they desire money. It's a way of making money. They are proud, third one. They're boastful. They are braggart. They're constantly um, uh, filled with and brag about their accomplishments. Right? They are self-promoters. Fourthly, they're arrogant. Right? And this is different from boastful in that proud is that they're proud of themselves. Arrogant is they compare themselves with others. And they feel they feel superior. Uh, the literal meaning is they place themselves above others. Fifth is abusive. Uh, the Greek word blasphemous. They denigrate others. So because they feel superior, they uh, vilify others. They indict others. They're disobedient to their parents and they're ungrateful. So in their family relationships. They're not loyal to their parents. And they're ungrateful. Um, they're unholy. They're sinful. The next one is heartless. It's a compound word again, astergos. Astergos is um, natural affection that, that all human beings should have, where children have a natural affection towards moms and sometimes dads, mostly moms. We have natural affection towards our friends, towards our country, uh, these people are without sturgus. They are without affection. And I like ESV's translation. They are heartless. 
they don't have a heart. It's not loving enemies. Even among friends, even among family members, they're just looking out for themselves. And they're uncaring towards even those that are closest to them. Um, They are unappeasable. They're stubborn. They cannot be reasoned with. They are resolute. They are slanderous. This is a diabolos. They're maliciously gossiping about one another. They're like the devil. They're accusing, constantly accusing others to elevate themselves. The twelfth one is they're without self-control. It denotes almost incontinence. They are they don't have a sound mind. They are almost drunk. They don't have no self-control. They're like they're they're like beasts. They're animals in how they live their lives. They are brutal in terms of their savagery. They are not lovers of good. In fact, they're haters of good. They are treacherous. Uh, they are reckless. They are swollen with conceit. I mean, it goes on. And the number the eighteenth one. They are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now the word here is rather, not more than. It's not they love God, but they love pleasure more. No, instead of loving God, they love pleasure. They love to please themselves. That is their root motivation. That is what drives their lives, their their decisions, uh, how they see the angles in their lives. It's all about how can I derive most pleasure? And it has no thoughts of glorifying God or loving God. This is uh, the list that Paul gives. The root one is their lovers of self. And then 17. And uh, the utmost one, the final one, is um, is... What they, what they deny. They have, verse 19, the appearance of godliness. Form, appearance comes from the word morphe. It refers to the outward shape, such as that of a silhouette, uh, the outline, the shadow of something. So they have a form. They're good at fakery. They're good at impersonation, at, at mimicking others. So they see godliness, and they only see it from the outward uh, form. So they're, they're masters at faking, imitating, impersonating. They just have a form, but they deny the power that produces genuine godliness. This is the ultimate and final mark. They deny the gospel. It is the gospel... It is the grace of God. It is Jesus Christ alone that produces true godliness. Apart from the gospel, godliness is impossible. So these false Christians and false leaders, instead of going to the source of godliness, they just imitate the form of it and they deny the power of the gospel. So their hearts are still curved into themselves. Rages out of control. 
And they're all about um, legalism. They're all about religion. They're all about external performance and righteousness. Because that is their Christianity. That is what they believe. That is what they trust. And that is what they espouse to others. Just external impersonation. right? External obedience. Because they deny the power of the gospel. They don't trust in Jesus Christ. So for them, it's all about the law. And they go from bad to worse. And what will they do? Um, and this is how, um, just, this is the level of uh, depravity of, of these people. From among them, they will mark out the most vulnerable, the most weak, the most helpless in the congregation. They will seek out women who are overwhelmed with sin. And most likely these are widows or single women who are laden with guilt and shame, who are whose heart is whose hearts are weak. They're they're always learning, but they can't grasp the truth. They can't lay hold of the gospel and the freedom and the power that the gospel gives. So they're dependent on people. So these false leaders target women, weak willed women. And they, uh, they covertly uh, enter into their home, into their lives, and ensnare them and take advantage of them. And um, the church, is, uh, church history as a whole and churches that we know of have, been, uh, have experienced predators like this where they have targeted the most vulnerable and um, taken advantage and abused them for their sordid purposes. So Timothy must be innocent as a dove, but wise as a serpent. So Christian leaders, we have a soft heart, but also a courageous heart, a very uh, cunning, wise, discerning heart. And that is what Paul is calling Timothy to do, to be. Be pure, but don't be naive. We live in a terrible time with terrible people, and you need to know uh, their strategy. You need to discern who they are, and you need to protect those who are vulnerable in the church, and you need to mark this. You need to understand this. And then Timothy's, Paul's second command to Timothy is avoid them. Avoid them. And uh, it's the idea of Second uh, John chapter 1, 10, 11. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So it's the idea of do not validate such people. Do not affirm, do not grant authority, do not convert any legitimacy to such people. Avoid them. Right? That is why uh, church leadership and protecting and guarding who becomes leader in the church is the responsibility of the elders to protect the flock from such people. So John said, if anyone produces 
comes with a false teaching. Avoid them. Do not greet. Do not welcome. Take no part in his wicked ways. Timothy is to avoid and not partner in any way in ministry, whether in the church or outside the church, with such false teachers. Well, the hope is found in verse 9. God's sovereignty, he will allow them to be in the church and to a certain extent wreak havoc in the church. But God promises through Paul, they will not get very far. There is a certain point beyond which they are not allowed to go. There is a certain point where they are allowed to live sinfully and, 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 and cause havoc and devastate the church, but there is a limit to what God will allow. He, Christ said, this is my church and I will build it. His church will continue to stand. And the means through which God will do this is, not, is, is through the church, through believers, through leaders. Their folly will be plain to all. He talks about Janus and Jambres, these uh, sorcerers of Egypt. Their folly was clearly seen by all the Israelites. Likewise, in the church, uh, the church has an immune system. And that is the Holy Spirit residing in, in, in Christians' hearts, filled with the Word of God, granting discernment. And the church will clearly see this person is a false Christian or this person is a false teacher and their foolishness will be plain because their lives will be marked by these 19 qualities found in verses 2 through verse 5. Now, how do we close this? In light of last week's sermon um, that... uh, Apart from grace, right, we are but sinners. You know, we need to look at this passage and be profoundly disturbed and humbled because this list describes each and every one of us apart from Jesus Christ. Right? This is who we are. We are lovers of self, lovers of money. We are proud. We are arrogant. We are blasphemers. We have no loyalty to our family. We are ungrateful. We are unholy. We are without natural affection. We are heartless people. We are unreasonable people. We are diabolos. We are accusers. We have no self-control. We are brutal. We are treacherous. We are haters of good. We are reckless. We are filled with conceit. And we are lovers of pleasure and lover, instead of lovers of God. And we have a form of godliness, but we deny the gospel. The, the Bible is a mirror and reveals to us who we would have been apart from the gospel of Christ. These monstrous people, that is us, apart from Christ, this is what Jesus saved us from. 
This is who we are apart from Jesus. So we see practically what Jesus has saved us from. We, you know, we, we sing, we're thankful to Christ for saving us. And we, we think in lofty, you know, global terms. He saved us from hell, saved us from sin, saved us from eternity and separation from God. But here is practically a practical list of what he has saved us from. Right? A detailed portrait of what he has delivered us from by his, by his cross. At the same time, practically, this is what we wrestle with day to day in our lives. Right? We are Simon Eustace at Peccator. At the same time, justified, at the same time, we're sinners. And if you're honest with yourselves, often we are lovers of self more than lovers of God. We are lovers of money or the lovers of God. These idols fill our hearts. Right? We are arrogant, we're conceited, we're reckless, we're without self-control, we are treacherous, we are slandering others. Right? We are blind to ourselves, we justify ourselves. We are ungrateful, we are rebellious to our parents, we are without natural affection. We are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That is a reality for each and every one of us. Probably in a single day, uh, these things go through us. Every single one of them pass through our hearts and they are reality to us. The common response is, oh, I need to uh, stop doing this. I need to mortify this. I need to destroy this. I need to stop loving myself. I got to start loving God. I got to stop loving pleasure. I got to start loving God. And put ourselves in the midst of our own religious efforts, which is again a form of godliness, and we are still denying its power. Right? If we try to fight these sins on our own strength, we are fulfilling verse 9. Right? We are having a form of godliness, but we're still denying its power. Now, arguably, this text comes to us the most perfect day on Communion Sunday, where after the message, we're forced to go to Jesus. We are forced to go to Jesus on his terms, and where we just receive passively. And it is all about remembering what he has done what he has accomplished, what he has done on the cross, and remembering and putting him at the center and not ourselves. On communion, we remember he is our strength and he is our power for our salvation, for our sanctification, for us to be set free from these uh, sinful marks and to be free to, to be lovers of Christ. In August 21st, 1544, uh, Martin Luther wrote a letter to a friend named George Spalatin. 
Uh, Mr. Spalatin was a Christian brother who was suffering terribly with enormous guilt because of his many sins. He was devastated, guilt-ridden, and depressed. Luther, learning of his condition, wrote to him the following. He said, My faithful request and admonition is that you join our company and associate with us who are real, great, and hard-boiled sinners. You must by no means make Christ to seem paltry and trifling to us as though He could be our helper only when we want to be rid from imaginary, nominal, and childish sins. No, no, exclamation point. That would be no good for us. He must rather be a Savior and Redeemer for us from real, great, grievous, and damnable transgressions and iniquities, yea, from the very greatest and most shocking sins, to be breathed from all sins added together in a grand total. Let's go to Jesus with grievous, shocking sins such as these that are in our hearts, and go to Him and not deny the power that is in Jesus Christ. Let's receive from Him true power of the Gospel that releases us, that has forgiven us, that empowers us to trust in Him for our sins and not in our own efforts. May that be our our resolution in our hearts as we partake of communion, partake of the bread and cup, no more striving, no more guilt, no more shame, no more me in the center of my Christian efforts. I am done with the form of godliness, trying to portray myself as godly before others, all the while denying the power of the gospel. I'm going to trust. I'm going to receive by coming to Jesus with my shocking sins, confessing it freely because He will give me grace and give it to me freely. Again, with your Bibles open, pens in your head, if you just bow and close your eyes and let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh God, it is uh, disturbing to say the least to, to consider these false Christians and false leaders that no one believe that that is a description of, of us without the gospel, without your son Jesus Christ, without his substitutionary death on the cross. That is who we would be in whole. And yet, in parts, in the areas of our lives, we are still these ways. We still have these sins festering in us because we are still striving. We're still holding on to ourselves, trusting in our own strength and our own efforts rather than the power of God. Lord, as we uh, take the elements to stay on this holy hour, we turn our eyes away from ourselves and away from our works 
and we turn our eyes and we fix it completely on Christ, on the cross, who accomplished it all and you finished it. Lord, may your gospel that has, has infinite power, Lord, may we be lost in that truth and, and set us free to receive all that you have for us in him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.